Good morning. Well, it is my joy to teach on this topic. Uh, like Tommy, I agree this is a very important topic. Uh, unlike Tommy, however, I probably won't slip into a pirate character. You never know, though. <clears throat> it's, it's happening already. Every year, countless university students around the world are taught that only a small percentage of the New Testament accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth actually reflect what he really said and did. In most cases, lecturers are simply passing on what they had received from their teachers. The reason for their opinions may vary over the years according to the latest skeptical fashions, but some arguments prove remarkably persistent. The Gospels were not written by people in a position to know what Jesus was like. Primitive cultures believed in miracles like the virgin birth and resurrection that we know are impossible. Oral traditions quickly distorted early Christian claims. Theological interest precludes historical accuracy. What we call heresy actually preceded orthodoxy. Non-canonical gospels disprove the stories found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so on. Probably few of the instructors who pass on such claims ever realize how weakly supported their positions are and how some of these claims have actually been disproved. In most cases, they leave their students wholly unprepared to sift truth from error. So begins Craig Blomberg in his book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. This is a book that we read at the seminary, and he continues over the next several hundred pages to answer such objections and support the historical reliability of the Gospels. That the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John indeed do relate with historical accuracy the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Nonetheless, in our culture, in our time, stereotypes remain. Miracles are impossible. But says who? Stories in the Gospels are made up. Well, how do you know that? One clear observation does remain. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus differently. How can they all be right? Is one right and the other's wrong? Is one better than the others? Or are they all wrong? This observation that the Gospels tell the life of Jesus differently is one issue that causes unbelievers to stumble. And that's really unfortunate because, as we'll see in a moment, there's no reason to stumble over this observation. Yet this observation that the Gospels tell the life of Jesus differently also causes believers some hesitancy in sharing their faith. What will we do if someone brings this up? What are we to say in those situations? Well, the, facts that Matt, the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus' life but not, do not agree in every detail should neither cause stumbling nor hesitancy. For while there are problems to be resolved, there are also great opportunities and opportunities specifically for confidence in the historical reliability of the Gospels. So that will be our outline for today. When comparing the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we will see that there are some problems. There are some ways that they don't exactly jive in their wording. But there are also great opportunities. What are those opportunities? And what confidence can all of this actually create for Christians and non-Christians alike? So that will be our outline. Problems, opportunities, and confidence. 
Before I get into the first point, though, problems, let me take a brief aside. Before I go any further, let me clarify a couple terms. I will be using the term gospel, singular, and gospels, plural. And I mean different things by them. By gospel, singular, I mean the one story, the one historical reality that Jesus of Nazareth lived in Galilee and Judea. He traveled around, he spoke, he did miracles, he lived a sinless life. He traveled to Jerusalem and he was crucified there in Jerusalem in the first century. And then three days later, he was resurrected back to life. And there are witnesses to that resurrection who saw him dead and then saw him alive and proclaimed throughout the region, and I mean beyond Jerusalem, beyond the lands of Israel, international proclamation that if you repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven of your sins and given also resurrection, eternal life. Not unlike John 3.16 that we just uh, memorized. That is the gospel, and there's only one gospel. If anyone ever tells you a different story of Jesus' life or a different meaning to what Jesus' life meant, then that's a false gospel. There is only one gospel, and that, in brief summary, is it. Yet, we talk about four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what we really mean when we say that is four accounts of the one gospel. So the singular gospel according to Matthew, the singular gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. They're all narrating the same gospel. But sometimes for abbreviation, we simply call them gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What they all have in common is this, the narration of Jesus' life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection on the third day. Yet, the details within that basic framework do vary from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let's think, first of all, about some problems. How can the variation of details create some problems? Well, if we can get Matthew 5 up there, we'll start right off the bat with uh, that other sermon that Tommy just mentioned, often called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus goes up on a mountain, and this is what he preaches. Notice verse 3, particularly. Look carefully at the wording. Blessed are the poor... In spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Note that, the poor in spirit. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What do they hunger and thirst for? Specifically, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are blessed because they will be satisfied. He goes on and continues to announce such blessings. Um, And then in verse 11, concludes, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely, on my account. Because you're Christians, you follow Jesus, and people utter evil things against you. Jesus says you're actually blessed. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when we turn to Luke, which Tommy will take us through the rest of the summer, this is Luke 6. This is commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. And notice how similar it is. In verse 20, Jesus lifted his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. Full stop. No qualification. For yours is the kingdom of God. In Matthew, what did we just read? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Hmm, it's a little, it's a little different. But it has major consequences when you notice that difference. 
Look at the very next verse. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Just hungry? Because in Matthew we read, hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is just straight up hunger. And in verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Whereas before he said, on my account. Maybe a distinction without a difference, but what did he, which one did he say? He said one or did he say the other? Luke also goes on in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. You shall be hungry. Matthew doesn't have those woes. At least not right there. He has that much later in his gospel. And then there are other differences. Matthew's entire sermon is way longer than Luke's. Some of you would therefore prefer Luke's. Some prefer Matthew's. Uh, they also occur at different points in Jesus' life. In Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first public teaching. It's the first thing he says after he goes through his baptism and temptation. But in Luke, as we've seen from other sermons here, Jesus is already teaching. He's already doing miracles. We're well into his ministry. And so how do we make sense of this? They appear to be so similar, uh, but they are also different in significant ways. I wouldn't call these contradictions. But there is the undeniable claim, uh, observation, that they are different, which calls into question, well, which one did Jesus really say? If we're trying to get after the words of the greatest teacher there ever was, I think we want to know what specifically did he say, and doesn't it erode a little bit of our confidence in one or both of them, or maybe all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Let me give you another example. Let's get Matthew 1 up there. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, who are Jesus' ancestors, right? Matthew, in chapter 1, as you can see there, he starts right off with this. It must be important. It must be significant. Maybe it doesn't matter as much to us, but it sure mattered to them to devote big chunks of their uh, stories of Jesus to gene genealogies. And look at verse, uh, verse 6 in particular. Notice, it's really important, notice that Jesse is the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Or you could put it the other way and say Solomon is the son of David. Solomon is the son of David, right? Go a little further into verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, or Shealtiel the father of Jeconiah. Now, we don't have to... Uh, I'm sorry, the son of Jeconiah. Uh, you don't have to remember all these names. I'm just pointing out two of them. Because when we go to Luke, Luke's genealogy is in chapter 3 of his book. And look at what it says in verse 27. The son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. Now, interesting. Jeconiah was the son of Shealtiel. Now this person, Neri, is the son of Shealtiel. So those are, those are different names. Uh, equally, down in verse uh, 31, I think it is. Yes, 31. That Nathan, you see it underlined there? Nathan is the son of David. Well, just a moment ago, we read that Solomon was the son of David. Of course, David had multiple sons, but Jesus' genealogy is through one of them. How can it be through both or separately? The point of genealogies is precision. 
You can't have approximate, approximately my family, right? The point is precision. So what happened to Solomon? What happened to Jeconiah? One more example, and this one might be the most significant. In the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, all four Gospels insist that three days after his crucifixion, he was raised back to life. But listen to this. In Matthew 28, it says that the women came to the tomb toward the dawn. Luke 24 says, at early dawn. Hmm, I can see how the same time of the day could be described in those different terms. But John 20 says, while it was still dark. That's not dawn. It's still dark. Who came to Jesus' tomb? Matthew 28 says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Whereas Mark 16 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary and Salome, a third woman who Matthew doesn't have. Luke 24 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary and Joanna and others. So now there's a whole troop, right? With each gospel, it seems like this, the group of women coming to Jesus' tomb is getting bigger and bigger. Then in John 20, only Mary Magdalene. Now you have one person. Those are differences. Who did they meet when they got there? Matthew 28 says there was one angel who rolled away the stone. Mark 16 says a young man in a white robe sitting inside the tomb. Hmm. Luke 24 says two men in dazzling apparel. And John 20, zero angels. Zero people are there. One more example. What did these women do after they went to the tomb? Matthew 28 and Luke 24 says that they went and told the 11 disciples. Whereas Mark 16 says they kept quiet. And John 20 says they simply told Simon and Peter. Well, Simon is Peter. Simon and John. Simon and John. These appeared to be troubling. Whether it's Jesus' origins or the most significant teaching of his career, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, or his resurrection, there are discrepancies everywhere you turn. Fear not, Christian. The church has known about this for 2,000 years. <laughs> Billions of Christians have known about this over the ages and across the globe. Sometimes when you, uh, maybe you read National Geographic or Smithsonian Magazine or watch the History Channel or A&E or something like that, these sort of details are presented like somebody just discovered these things. And if Christians had known this, there never would have been a Christianity or, or something like that. It's presented as a kind of scandal. It's not a scandal. We've known this stuff for a long, long time. Regarding the sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, it is most likely that these were that Jesus delivered the same sermon over and over again. He was an itinerant preacher. He went from town to town. And if he has something important to say... He can't just record it and have you download a copy later. He's got to repeat what he says over and over again. And so as he did, it would have been changed a little bit. Not the essence of what is the kingdom of heaven or who he is, but nonetheless, some of the details of the wording of the sermon. I can testify to this myself as I, representing the seminary, I go from church to church and I preach. And sometimes I tell the same message. 
But I'll change things. I'll change an introduction. I'll change an application. I certainly won't say it exactly the same way over and over again. And if somebody were out there copying down what I said and compared notes, you'd have the same basic sermon with some differing details. Moreover, Matthew's is so much longer. It's likely that Matthew is actually recording several of Jesus' sermons and for the sake of organization, simply putting them together in a three-chapter chunk at the beginning of his gospel to front-load his narrative uh, so the reader can understand, well, what is this thing called the kingdom of God? And so what you have is differing details in Matthew and Luke because they're different sermons delivered on different days and in different locations. One is even called the Sermon on the Mount. The other is called the Sermon on the Plain. One is called, a, I think Greg said, a level place. And we all know mountains are what? Not level. <laughs> the opposite of level. So there's different sermons on different days. The genealogy is a little more tricky. Uh, like I said, genealogies are designed for precision, to know who, is, who are your ancestors and so forth, who are Jesus' ancestors. Um, and so a lot has been written on these over the years. The clearest explanation is likely this, that Luke records what you would consider as Jesus' genetic or biological genealogy, his real parents, yet not without adoptions, not without adoptions. Uh, I would say that life is more fragile back then than it is now, but that's not accurate. It's always fragile. However, nonetheless, with the various medical and scientific advancements we have that they didn't, there was a lot of death in earlier years, and so it's very common that uh, uh, fathers would die, either naturally or they went to war or something like that, and leave, uh, leave their wives widows and their children half orphans. And it was a law in Israel that if you had an unmarried brother or cousin or even distant cousin would marry that woman and raise her children, the dead brother's children, as one's own, thereby adopt him, the children, into another, though related, family tree. And Luke likely represents some of that, but doesn't tell you all the records that you're going to figure it out on your own. Matthew, on the other hand, is concerned about what principally? Less who specifically raised which children in which home, and more what is the legal royal lineage from King David. Not concerned specifically about, again, Home, home economics, but rather about where is the legal line of descent from David. Because David is promised an eternal kingdom by God. So knowing who is the next heir in line is of critical importance. And it's clear from Matthew, his focus on the house of David and Jesus as the son of David, uh, more than all the others, though the others are also emphasized on that, uh, that's what G Matthew's concern is in his genealogy. So one is genetic with adoptions, the other is legal and royal. So it makes perfect sense that Matthew and Luke, they have different reasons. Why, why communicate a genealogy at all? What do, what do the rest of us care? But to express something of all of humanity, Luke, or to get after some point concerning the kingship as in Matthew. So they have different motivations, so they have different focuses. The resurrection. The resurrection is the one that deserves the most attention. Now listen to this. When it comes to the resurrection accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same basic outline is in place. Here's the outline. Women come to the tomb. Jesus is not there. 
they go and tell somebody, and those somebody else then subsequently see the resurrection, either that day or days later. Women come to the tomb. Jesus is not there. They tell others, and those others see the resurrection. In that broad outline of the events of Easter morning, there is exact precision. There's exact precision. Why then do they vary in the details? Why do they vary in the details? It's likely that Mary Magdalene made multiple trips to the tomb. Completely understandable. We're not talking about a trip halfway across the county or across the state or however you would think of Judea at the time. It's just across the valley. Uh, From Bethany, it's right over the hill. And so on such a massive event as the crucifixion of their rabbi, it's very likely that Mary went multiple times. In fact, listen to this wording from John 20. Listen carefully. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, again by herself, came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went and told Simon Peter and John. Now, that's very concise. That's very brief. She goes and no one's there. Nothing happens. All the other details come from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so it's likely that Mary went first. She found nothing. She went and told Peter and John because that's what she would have done. They were the de facto leaders of this messianic movement insofar as there was still one left. And then she, what do we do now? She took some other women back with her to the tomb. Combine that simply with the observation that the gospel writers were selective in writing down what they thought was necessary. There's no way they could record all the events of everything that happened. That would actually bore the audience. So they're thinking, what does my audience need to know about that day? Who are the people they may or may not know? So Mark includes this woman, Salome, and uh, Luke, Joanna, probably because the people to whom they were writing knew those women. And he was reminding them, hey, someone you know was there on that day. And you can ask her more about it. So we know that the gospel writers had specific audiences in mind. John wrote to a community of believers in Ephesus. Matthew wrote to a community of believers in Syrian Antioch. And Mark wrote to a community of believers in Rome, all of which were far away from Jerusalem out in the lands of the Gentiles where the gospel mission was already making progress. And Luke probably wrote to really anybody and everybody who would, who would read uh, to give an historical and apologetic account for the truth of Christianity. So when you think of authors and to whom they are writing, those authors will present what they think their audience uniquely needs, which is different than the other audiences. To put it another way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not sit down and say, someday there'll be this community called Castleton Community Church, and they'll want to know all about Jesus, and so I'm going to give them all the details. No, 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 no. They were thinking about their first century local context and what those people need, and therefore gave details that are different for those people. Let me give you an illustration that I think will make the point. Two weeks ago, or two and a half weeks ago, my wife and I were in Paris, great, great city to visit, And we went to a place called the Orsay Museum. And at the Orsay, we saw Claude Monet. Well, we didn't see him. We saw his art. We saw Claude Monet. We saw Pierre-Auguste Rodin. uh, I'm sorry, Renoir. Renoir. And Vincent Van Gogh. Pieces from from all three of those. You don't need to know those names, but those are three 
uh, artists. And if you asked me about our trip, I would tell you about their pieces that we saw at the Orsay. Why would I do that? There was a lot more there. Well, because they're the ones that stood out to me the most, and they're the ones that I find the most interesting, and I would think you might find the most interesting as well. But if you talk to my wife, she might say the same names. She might not, but she also may mention Paul Gauguin and August Rodin, right? Well, is she right? Am I right? Were they there? Why did I leave them out? Am I trying to cover something up? Am I trying to hide something? Does she just remember better? Uh, am I wrong in my details? No, no, we're both right, but depending on what impact the museum had on us determines what we remember and what we think you might be interested in hearing. So we're both right. And when we tell the story of our trip from a different point of view and from different ideas worth sharing with other, that actually creates what we call corroboration. Corroboration. There's your 12th grade SAT word for the day. Corroboration. What is corroboration? Corroboration is when two or more people tell a story, news story, eyewitness account, anything like that, about something that they saw happen, and they agree in the central essence, but their details vary. Their details are different. And so because the gospel writers tell the same account of the women coming to the tomb, Jesus isn't there, they tell other people, that Jesus wasn't there, and those other people see Jesus later that day or on subsequent days, all pieced together with different details, corroborate each other so that you actually have four witnesses of the gospel instead of just one. We'll come back to that idea of corroboration in just a moment. So are these really problems? I don't think they're problems. I don't think they're problems at all. If you expect the gospel writers to do exactly what you wanted to do, record things the way you would have, well then yeah, you're forcing them to do something that they never set out to do. But if you let them be first century biographers in their contexts with their unique emphases and audiences, we find that they're not problems at all, but they're actually, point number two, opportunities. They're opportunities. How are the discrepancies in the gospel accounts opportunities? Well, they present opportunities to see Jesus in the king and the kingdom of God in dynamic, not static ways. Here's what I mean. I just mentioned that we had been to Paris, right? We saw Paris. We experienced Paris. How so? How did we see Paris? How did we experience Paris? Well, we saw it from a distance. Coming in on the airplane, we could see the entire city in one eye shot together with the surrounding countryside. We also saw Paris from the street where we couldn't see everything, but we could see the details. Details of the buildings, details of the historical culture, of the food, and the other people. We saw Paris from the Eiffel Tower, which is, again, a top-down view, but we could see specific landmarks like the Notre Dame, the Seine River, the Louvre Museum. We saw it from the French Open, a piece of modern culture in the ancient city. We even saw it from the subway and from a cemetery. We saw it when we were jet-lagged. We saw it when we were well-rested. We saw it in the day. We saw it at night. We saw it in the rain. We saw it in the sunshine. Every way that you can imagine, we saw and experienced Paris. The point here is that if we had only flown by or only walked to the streets or only took a picture from the Eiffel Tower, can we really say that we saw Paris, a monolithic 
and narrow slice of Paris only. But no, it's the dynamic diversity of all those different points of view, each with a unique emphasis, whereby we can say we saw Paris equally. The Gospels provide a stacked and cross-sectional view of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Here's the way I understand it. When reading Matthew, if you just read Matthew, it's as though you're standing in history with Abraham and David and looking down the corridors of time with like a binocular to see Jesus from that vantage point. The vantage point of the promises of Abraham and David now coming to fruition in Jesus. It's the long view, as it were. Mark, on the other hand, reads like the street-level view. You're right down there with Jesus in the nitty-gritty of life. In reading Mark, you get the sense of Jesus' power and suffering as though you're there with him. You are with him in the boat when he does his miracles and so forth. Luke is like that airplane view that where you can see all of history, as it were, and how Jesus' life and ministry fits within and actually fulfills the meaning of history, life, the universe, and everything. And that's just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which some say are very similar. Yes, they're similar in their outline. Jesus is baptized by John. He goes into Galilee. Then he comes to Jerusalem. But the organization of the details and the emphases in the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke take give them a dynamic and multi-layered picture of Jesus and the kingdom. Then there's John. John is altogether different. Different teachings, different miracles, different structure, uh, different details after the resurrection. And the point of all of it is to present Jesus as the creator God himself, transcendent and holy, suddenly come to live with his people, to reveal his glory through his teachings and his miracles, and to lead them on a new exodus, whereby they might become a new worshiping people in fellowship and relation with him and with each other. So four gospels, all similar in what they teach of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but unique in the details and organization of material that gives an opportunity to see Jesus in a four-dimensional, stacked starkness, as it were. From the beginning of the church, there have been attempts to create what we call harmonies, harmonies of the gospel, where you take the various, the four different gospels and try to figure out when did Jesus do this in Luke, and when did he do this in Mark, and when did he do this in John, and put them all together into a kind of super gospel, Right? And they can be very helpful to a degree if you're interested in just the chronological detail of Jesus' life. But it should be observed that God in his wisdom, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not give us one super gospel with a chronological timeline. God has given us Matthew, which in its full, whole integrity alone teaches Jesus' life and the kingdom of God. And then he gave us Mark, which does the same. And Luke and John, distinct from each other, four pictures of the same Jesus of the same kingdom. And that's the way he wants us to experience Jesus. Not as a mishmash of all the Gospels together, as though historical factoids is all we need, but no, the presentation 
of the gospel according to Matthew, the presentation of the gospel according to Mark, the presentation according to Luke, and the presentation of the gospel according to John, each distinct in and of themselves, working together to give that dynamic picture. And so here's my application from our sermon today. Application number one. This week, or this afternoon rather, get out your calendar for the week and find four days where on each of these days you can find a two-hour time spot that you can sequester for this little homework assignment. Does that make sense? This is an eight-hour project over four days, two days each. And what are you going to do in that two-hour time spot? You're going to turn off the phone, turn off the internet, turn off the television, turn off the radio, turn off the Twitter, turn off the Facebook. Do I need to go on? Turn it off. And the only thing you're going to leave on is a light bulb, okay, in your brain. And sit down and read Matthew from cover to cover in one sitting, chapter 1 through chapter 28 in one sitting. Take about two hours. Thank you very much, Matthew. The next day, you're going to read Mark cover to cover. Only 16 chapters won't take you as long. Then you're going to read Luke in one sitting. It's the longest one. And then you're going to read John in one sitting, each by themselves. And you will get this glorious fourfold presentation, each with its own wholeness and completeness, but nonetheless working with the other four as you keep them together rather than piece by piece, little by little, mashing them up. And you'll take advantage of this wonderful fourfold opportunity to see the dynamic, stacked and cross-sectional view of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Finally, this builds our confidence. Yes, the discrepancies actually build our confidence. Let us return the confidence that these are historically reliable. Let us return to that idea of corroboration. Different voices that are similar in their primary account, but different in the details, actually build confidence that their testimony is true. Let me give you an illustration. Let's imagine that you're the boss of a small business, and you have four employees. You have four employees. And one day, all four employees are late. And you're a little annoyed by this. There's a, there's a traffic. Traffic delayed us. Really, all four of you. It didn't delay me. I was on time. And so you call each employee in one by one, and you ask them to give an account. Why were you late? Explain to me this traffic that was so uh, inhibiting. And every one of them says, well, there were elephants in the road. Elephants blocked up traffic. There were exactly four of them. They were this height, and the police came out to try to get them back into the circus. And those four elephants blocked the various roads that we were coming on to get to, to work. You would say to yourself, hmm, this sounds like a tall tale. This sounds like you were out partying late last night. You knew you wouldn't wake up early for work. And so you agreed together to tell the same story so they would all fit together. It sounds like a made-up story. If, however, two of them said, I don't know why traffic was slow. It just, it just was. I, I would like to know as well. And two of them said, we saw elephants in the road blocking up the traffic. And of the two that knew of the elephants, one said they were baby elephants. And the other said, well, they seem quite big animals to me. They look fully grown to me. Maybe they, were, they must have been adult elephants. One says there were four elephants, and one says there were three. You understand? 
One says the cops were there to move them out, and the other says the cops were nowhere around. Nobody was doing anything about these, about these elephants, right? Then you would start to suspect maybe there really was a traffic problem because caused by elephants. Because while they agree on the same basic story, traffic wasn't moving, they actually have slightly varying details for why. Now it sounds less like a conspiracy, let's all tell them the same story, to, oh, they all experienced the same thing in four different ways. And actually have now a fuller picture of what happened. This is actually a true story. My dad, when I was young, I don't remember this because I was too young, but my dad and mom loved to tell this story that my dad came home from school one day. He was a teacher. And my mom said, why are you late? Dinner's on the table, so on and so forth. And he said, there were elephants in the road. There were elephants in the road. And, of course, she didn't believe him. She didn't believe him. But he insisted, no, there are elephants in the road. And she got a little upset that he won't stop with his joke and just tell her what really happened, right? Um, but he con- continued to insist there were elephants in the road. And uh, two days later, he produced, wouldn't you know it, a news article from the newspaper describing how the circus was in town and a handful of elephants got out and slowed down traffic on such and such a road. Now, if my dad's account of the experience and the details of the article were exactly lined up, my mother would have thought, yeah, you saw this article, you, told, you made up why you're late, and you waited a few days to spring it upon me, but really, you just read about the elephants, but you weren't involved, right? But my dad says he saw a different number of elephants on a different road uh, and had a different experience than the article explained. So now what we see is, from my dad's point of view, it was one thing, but from the newspapers, are, who needs to tell a story to his wife, a true story to his wife, and then from the article's point of view, they're writing for the public, objective story of what happened uh, on such and such a road a couple days earlier. And so because there's a variety in the account with the same central core, my mother is actually convinced that he was delayed because of elephants. So if you're ever late for some appointment, you can always try that one. The point is simply this. The point is this. Contrary to what some people expect, maybe even ironically, the differences in the Gospels actually build the case for their historical veracity, their historical reliability. You see, we believe that God has truly acted in history, in space and time. And so the Bible comes to us, not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but nearly the entire Bible, from eyewitness testimony and from revelation. Other faiths, faiths, contend that their leader was in a cave and received a word from God one day or went into the woods and saw something that nobody else saw or sat under the tree, touched the ground, and suddenly received enlightenment. Maybe, but how can we verify that? How can we know that? But Christians have always claimed from the very beginning that these things happened and many people saw it and many people can testify to it. And the gospel books have all the hallmarks of eyewitness testimony and history, and therefore, truth. Therefore, truth. 
And the truth of these four books that they all share in common without discrepancy is, as I said before, the one gospel. The testimony that Jesus lived a sinless life. That he was crucified, according to Jesus, not for his own sins, not for anything wrong he had done, but for the sins of his people as an atonement. And that he was raised on the third day. And everyone who puts their trust in him will be forgiven of those sins and be given equally resurrection, eternal life, just like him. And that is grounded in real historical events, not just pie in the sky, wishful thinking. And this makes all the difference. So if you're an unbeliever here today, very glad you're here. I hope this was clear to you. But take away this point. Christians believe that the teachings of Jesus and the meaning of his death and resurrection are historically grounded and therefore true. It's common today to see Christianity as just, you know, uh, psychological help for those who can't get through the difficulties of life. And so is Buddhism. So is atheism, as a matter of fact. So is watching Oprah every day. There are various religious and philosophical gurus who can help us get through the difficulties of life. And Christians think, oh, Jesus is just a little bit better. No. We believe that Jesus is in a class by himself because of the historical realities of his teachings and, most importantly, of his resurrection. And that the man who comes back from the dead is in a position to say things about God, ethics, and redemption like nobody else. And that Jesus alone reconciles us to God, forgives us of our sins, and gives us eternal life. And that is grounded in historical experiences. And if you're not a believer, We'd love to talk with you more about that and why we have this confidence. And if you are a believer, Christian, we should know the problems that are presented in the four Gospels. Not try to hide them or hide from them, but we should see them for opportunities that they are that build our confidence. That our faith is built not on hearsay or the musings of one person, but on the varied, diverse unique testimonies of those who experienced the historical realities of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And for that, let's thank him. Lord Jesus, Jesus, we do give you praise that you have visited us in our world, in our space, where we live our lives, and that you have redeemed us from our sins. And we praise you, Father, for raising the Son from the dead. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, for giving us eyes to see these realities. We pray that we would live humbly and yet boldly because of these things, giving all glory and praise to you as you build our confidence in the truthfulness of your word and uh, reveal to us the dynamic, multi-layered vision of Jesus that your word has to offer. In his name we pray. Amen and amen.